I don't know if you've experienced this or not, but there's a tendency when we walk through these doors to pretend like you're something that you're not. We all do it. There are parts of our family, parts of our past, maybe even parts of this last week that we would rather people not know about. One of the most effective lies of the evil one is to convince us that we are only accepted by God and by the people of God if we put our best foot forward, if we're on our best behavior. The other side of the coin is that we so easily buy the lie that if if our church family knew the truth about us, that we wouldn't be welcome, that we wouldn't be loved, that God and our church would reject us. If you haven't noticed already, the story of Genesis should put that lie to rest. We're working our way through the account of God's chosen people, those whom God has selected and set apart as he works out his plan to rescue sinful humanity from themselves. And the recurring theme that's popped up in at least half of the 24 sermons to this point in Genesis is that God has chosen to use messy, sinful, dramatic, self-focused people with so much baggage to carry out his rescue plan. Whatever your past, whatever road brought you here today, whatever your struggle with faith, whatever doubts you've experienced, whatever shame you carry, whatever decisions you wish you could take back, the good news today is that God offers his forgiveness and grace and hope and peace and life. And not only that, but God can use our broken road, our difficult story for his glory to change the lives of others around us. God takes broken people and uses them as a beacon of hope in a dark world. And here's what's really crazy. God can usually use broken and messy people more effectively than those who have, at least outwardly, kept their lives clean. There are many reasons for that, but perhaps chief among them is that people who recognize their sin and their brokenness also recognize the incredible gift that they've been given. The beauty and the power of the gospel is most evident to sinners and to people who know that they are sinners. While people who have been pretty clean their whole lives can often be lulled into functionally believing that they no longer need a savior. God uses the broken, the vile, the messy, the confused, and the weak, and that certainly continues in our text today. We'll see this idea on display uh, even more. Genesis 29, verse 31, and continue into the next chapter, into chapter 30, until verse 24. So Genesis chapter 29, verse 31, this is God's word to us. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he has given me this one too. So she named him Simeon. 
Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, Here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. Because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, what good fortune. So she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, how happy I am. The women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. During the wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took my husband away? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later she gave birth to a daughter named Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, may the Lord add to me another son. Let's pray. God, you have spoken through your holy and inspired word as messy and complex and interesting as it is. Give us ears to hear what you are saying and hearts to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In these verses, God is setting the stage for what would become the nation of Israel. By the time we arrive at the end of our passage for today, we have 11 of the 12 tribes of Israel represented. Only Benjamin, Jacob's youngest son, is left to be born. If we would say that the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, are the foundation of the nation of Israel, then these Twelve sons are the supporting pillars. And so it's fascinating to me that the genealogy of Israel 
comes to us with such sordid detail. Think about it. Our text really could have been one paragraph. It could just say, Leah gave birth to Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Bilhah gave birth to Dan and Naphtali. Zilpah gave birth to Gad and Asher, and Rachel gave birth to Joseph. End of story. We would be at the same place. But instead, we have all of the drama, all of the division, all of the delusion, all of the effects of sin, the competition. And it's all part of the story of how God established Israel, his chosen people, a special people set apart for his purposes. And so as we think about this account of the establishment of Israel, messy as it is, we see some really helpful and profound thoughts that arise from this passage. First, we see this, that God's heart is inclined toward the unloved, the marginalized, and the mistreated. Remember where our text last week left off. Jacob was tricked into marrying Leah and then agrees to seven more years of labor in order to marry Rachel. And in chapter 29, verse 30, we read that Jacob's love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. Remember the descriptions of these two women. Leah was described as having, quote, weak eyes, whatever that means. And Rachel was described as having a lovely figure and that she was beautiful. And so Jacob loves Rachel, and the implication is that he really doesn't love Leah. Obviously, based on the number of children that Leah had, he didn't dislike her that much. But nonetheless, Rachel is the preferred wife, and Leah isn't. And so verse 31 of our text is so powerful, I think. It says this, When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. And we learn this valuable lesson about the heart of our loving God. The heart of God is inclined toward the unloved, the marginalized, the mistreated, the suffering. How many times do we see this in Scripture, where God advocates for and intervenes on behalf of those whom society had left behind or for whom life had been hard. This is one of the hallmarks of Jesus' ministry. Those with leprosy, the tax collectors who were hated by their neighbors, sinful women who were looked down upon by society, disrespected children who had very little value. Jesus constantly shows how important the meek and the marginalized and the oppressed and the forgotten are to him. We see this idea expressed in the names that Leah gives to her sons. These names have meaning, each of them, and our text explains it. The name Reuben acknowledges that God has looked upon Leah's affliction. The name Simeon means to hear that the Lord has heard Leah and has responded. The name Levi expresses her hope that just maybe her relationship and connection with her husband will now be fixed. The name Judah means I will praise the Lord. God knew Leah's condition and he responded in mercy to her. And so because God's heart is inclined toward the unloved, the marginalized, the mistreated, we aren't surprised at the number of times that scripture calls us to have the same heart, to provide for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the oppressed, the prisoner. That is the heart of our God. The next thing that we see is this, that Leah 
Rachel and Jacob serve as a mirror of the human condition. Like Sarah and Rebecca before her, Rachel seems to be unable to have children. Chapter 30, verse 1 says, When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God? He's the one who's kept you from having children. The ongoing saga between Rachel and Leah is almost tiring by the end of our text, isn't it? Rachel is overcome with envy, and so she sends her servant Bilhah to Jacob. And then Leah, whose fertility seems to have waned, figures she can do the same thing. It's just exhausting. But it all comes to its low point in verse 14. Jacob's firstborn son, Reuben, is out in the field, And he finds some mandrakes, and he brings them to his mother, Leah. And listen to what happens next. Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take away my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said, he can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him, and she said, I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. This is bizarre, isn't it? The mandrake is a tuberous plant that was thought, at least in the ancient world, to be an aphrodisiac, to also increase fertility. And so Rachel thinks that she needs some of that, and she strikes up this deal with Leah. Now what's interesting is, remember what Rachel said after her servant gave birth to two sons. She feels vindicated. She feels redeemed. But she doesn't really, right? It really didn't meet the need that she felt she had because she's still doing everything she can to try to have a son of her own. The family drama plummets to an all-time low. There's so much dysfunctional about this give and take between these sisters. But of course, that's the point. Leah and Rachel and their husband Jacob, the parents of the promise, are a picture, an example of a prototype, a mirror of the human condition. Jealous, angry, fighting, manipulating, deceiving, looking out for themselves first. Is there any more accurate depiction of our human reality? Another way that this bizarre family is a reflection of the human condition is in the way that they Uh, mishandled and misunderstood God's design for marriage. Er Early in Genesis, we saw it was made pretty clear, God's plan, God's original intent for marriage, that it be between one man and one woman, but sin, of course, wrecks everything. And we see as the story continues that there were actually a, a number of situations where God, out of his redemptive heart, actually gave his blessing to these strange marriage situations, We see it, for example, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when God tells King David that he's giving him some additional wives. And it's perhaps most clear in regard to what's called leveret marriage, where a brother was expected to marry the widow of his deceased brother in order to keep the memory and and lineage alive. But as we have a tendency to do, mankind has destroyed God's design for marriage. And we continue to find new ways to do it. 
the account of Jacob's obnoxious family situation should keep us from romanticizing the past too much. We're often tempted to look at the state of morality in our world and bemoan the way that that things have gone, but it's helpful to have a story like this to give us some context. Human beings, since the very beginning, have been finding ways to twist and to abuse what God has intended for good. It's what we do. It's who we are. And the beauty is that God used this sinful family, in spite of their mess and in spite of their fighting and jealousy and manipulation, to rescue and redeem the world. That doesn't mean that God approved of what they did, but it is a testimony to God's goodness and his faithfulness and his one-way love for his creation. God was going to rescue the world and he did it through terribly sinful people. And this is good news. That none of us are are too far gone for the Lord to use. No family is too messy or dysfunctional for God to use for his glory and for the good of others. There's no situation for which God's grace isn't sufficient. Much like Israel, this congregation is made up of messy, sinful, self-centered people. When Living Word started over 20 years ago, it was made up of a group of sinners And not much has changed, except for there's a few more sinners around. Every family, every church family has scar tissue from sin, stains left by tears and pain. If it's not damage caused by moral failure, it's damage caused by self-righteous legalism and judgmentalism. The thing that unites us is that each one here this morning is just like Jacob and Leah and Rachel. We are all in need of God's grace and forgiveness. We all bear the marks of sin and the disgrace that it brings. And that brings me to my third point today that I would like to share with you from our text. And that's that we see God give a son to take away the disgrace of sinners. Verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. I've mentioned it a number of times that if you and I were God, we would be done with this family. We would walk away. But God doesn't. God gave Rachel a son to take away her disgrace. That's the gospel, right? All of our hope is found in those words that God gives a son to take away the reproach, to remove the disgrace of sinners. God intervenes in this complicated family situation. Verse 22 says he remembered Rachel. I've mentioned the use of that word in past sermons. It comes up a number of times related specifically to God remembering his covenant promises to Israel. It's not as if God has forgotten Rachel right? Of course God hasn't forgotten. This is trying to put into human words that which is inexpressible, that the work of God to turn toward sinful mankind and to act in a way that will bring them salvation. And how does God save? How does God remove disgrace for Rachel? He sends a son. I can't help but think of Paul's words in Galatians 4. Galatians 4, 
Paul says this, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son. Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Just like he did with Sarah and Rebecca and Leah, God sends a son to rescue Rachel from the cultural disgrace that came with her barrenness. Which is exactly what he's done for us. God sent a son so that I would be rescued from my disgrace. This story is not primarily about a family that is fit for a television series on TLC. This is not primarily a story about this immediate family. This is the story of the faithfulness and mercy and love of God. What's amazing is that generations later, the names Rachel and Leah would be mentioned again together in a positive way in the book of Ruth. Listen to Ruth chapter 4, verse 11. It says, May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. Such a positive light. Scripture does this so many times. When we stop in the midst of the story, like we're doing today, we, we see all of the sin and all the dysfunction and all the mess and all the infighting. We see plenty of reasons to assume that nothing good could come from these people. But this is where God does his best work. Taking something that seems irredeemable and using it to redeem. Taking a lost cause and using it for an incredible purpose. I'm not sure if you caught the reference, but I mentioned last week that God would use these sisters, but in particular, he would use Leah, the unloved sister, in his redemptive plan. Early in our text, Leah gives birth to her fourth son named Judah. The name Judah is one that we will hear again in both Matthew chapter 1 and finally in Revelation chapter 5. Listen to how John weaves Judah back into the redemptive story in Revelation chapter 5. Listen to this. John writes, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Who is that lion of the tribe of Judah? Jesus, of course. The one who is found worthy, the one who is able to open the scroll. You see, God in his mercy uses rejected Leah to give us Jesus. God is at work redeeming and rescuing and restoring his creation, and he chose 
the forgotten, the mistreated, the unloved sister to give us the son who took away our disgrace. Leah didn't deserve it. Rachel didn't deserve the son that was given to her. And we don't deserve the son that God has given to us. And yet he gave. He invites us to simply receive the son by faith and live in relationship with the son by faith. We never reach a point where we start deserving that which God has given. The Christian life is a life of daily repentance and faith. Recognize today that God's heart is inclined toward the unloved, the marginalized, the mistreated, and and ask him to give you his heart. And then look into the mirror that's held up for us by Rachel and and Leah and Jacob. Confess your need for God's continued forgiveness and cleansing work and sanctifying work in your life. And then worship the Lord today because he has given us his son to remove our disgrace. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are so faithful in spite of us. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve the redemption that you offer so freely. And so thank you for the gospel hope, the good news that is found in these words today. Thank you for your love for Leah, forgotten, despised. Thank you for your provision for Rachel. Remove her disgrace. Thank you for your continual faithfulness. In spite of us, in spite of our sin, in spite of our dysfunction and our messiness. Thank you for the salvation that is promised through this messy family. that is realized in your son Jesus Christ. The son given to remove our disgrace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.